Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology whilst talking about our own personal experiences. This week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Tarek Ammer, who is an assistant professor at the University of Victoria. Tarek's research looks primarily at memory across the lifespan. In this episode, we talk about the nuances of the types of representations that we have in memory as we age and how aging and memory might not always be associated with negative outcomes, but there actually might be some positives to changes in memory as we age. My name is Tarek Ammer, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria. My work mostly has to do with cognitive aging. So I study older adults and how their memory and attention changes as they get older. So your research gives us a nuanced view of changes in memory in older adults. And before we get into your research, could you situate where the research was around 2014 when you were kind of starting this and what the general knowledge was about how memory changed with aging? Sure. So most of the research at the time, and again, it also continues to be this way currently, is focuses mostly on what declines with age or the negative aspects of aging that includes attention and memory. We're all familiar with the fact that older adults have uh, a lot of trouble remembering things from the past, or they sometimes have a lot of false memories. And most of the research focuses on those aspects of aging and also changes in the brain that are related to those negative aspects of aging. There have been a few studies at the time that kind of focused on the positive aspects of aging, and that's mostly what my research at the time had focused on as a grad student, and that's a lot of the research that I continue to do to this day. So specifically, you were looking at differences in encoding of memory in older adults. First, could you tell us what these different steps of kind of memory are from encoding and retrieval and the types of different processes that are involved in memory before we get into your research? Yeah, sure. So when we say encoding, we're referring to the processes that are involved in incoming information and how we process that information in order to have some sort of reliable memory trace for that. Retrieval is just basically being able to uncover that information that you already have in accordance with task demands and what you actually need to remember. So could you talk a little bit about one of your first studies that came out in 2014, looking at the advantages of the memory encoding that older adults might have compared to younger adults and how you actually tested this or what the methods of that study were? Yeah, so the idea for this study is kind of quite simple, and it has to do with the fact that older adults have more trouble relative to younger adults focusing their attention on some information and ignoring irrelevant distractors. And the idea is if older adults do actually process those sort of distracting pieces of information, will they actually show an advantage when the memory task actually tests mem their memory for that information later on? So again, a lot of the research had to do with the negative aspects of distraction processing and how it influences things like attention and processing speed and so forth. But we just wanted to test whether there actually are advantages for processing that irrelevant information. So the paradigm was very basic and involved them processing pictures, and they had to do what we call a one-back task. So they saw a stream of pictures that were presented individually, and they just simply had to press a button if two pictures in a row were identical. But there were actually words that were superimposed on those pictures that they were instructed to ignore. And what they didn't know is that their memory for those words was going to be tested later on on a future memory task. 
And what we found was that older adults actually showed better memory than young adults when they were asked to remember some of these older words. We didn't explicitly ask them to remember those words. It was an implicit memory task, meaning that they didn't actually know their memory is being tested or their memory is being tested indirectly. And that's usually a better way of testing memory in older adults. So essentially you found that these older adults were able to remember things that the younger adults were not remembering, specifically because the younger adults were kind of triaging things better. They were told, don't focus on this, and they were able to kind of control where their focus was. Exactly. So as older adults were processing more information, but they were better able to use it when it became relevant on a future task. So this sounds like kind of an advantage, like older adults one, younger adults zero in this case, but are there kind of real world situations in which this would be useful or is it actually more beneficial to be kind of focusing your attention where you quote unquote should be? So it definitely depends on the context. In a lot of tasks that we typically use in the lab or let's say in academic settings, for example, it's definitely very helpful to be able to narrow the focus of your attention on, on relevant information and ignore all those distractors. But there are certain situations we can think of where processing irrelevant information can actually be helpful. So a simple example is if you're trying to work in your office and your door is open and there are people talking outside and they happen to mention that one of the restaurants that you usually visit actually shut down. So even though this information is distracting in your current context, later on, if you're trying to pick which restaurant you want to go to dinner, then you actually kind of have this information in mind. You overheard people talking about their, your favorite restaurant actually shutting down. So in that case, this irrelevant information actually came in handy in a different context. That makes sense. So in later work, you also show that older adults showed reactivation of representations of distractors when they were presented with the target information that you were asking them to pay attention to. So what methods were you looking at to probe this kind of idea that you call bound representation? And can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by bound representations? Sure. So I'll start with the second half of the question. And by bound representations, we mean that older adults' memories contain in a sense, more information or information that is in a way bound or linked to one another. So they have several pieces of information together in that same memory representation. And the way we tested that was using a paradigm that was similar to the one that I previously mentioned, where we again had older adults process pictures that they have to pay attention to with superimposed distractor words. And what we actually did in this paradigm is after they did this first phase of the experiment, we presented some of those pictures again in a different task. And we just asked them to do something else with the picture. So we just simply asked them to indicate if a picture was depicting something that was living or non-living. And of course, the pictures in this case were shown without the superimposed distractor words. And the idea here is that if older adults are actually processing those pictures with the superimposed distractor word that they were told to ignore, then representing some of those pictures will elicit spontaneous reactivation of the previously superimposed word. And the way we tested that is, again, we tested their memory for those distractor words, depending on whether those were supposedly reactivated or not in that middle phase of the experiment. And what we saw is that when those words were reactivated, or at least we thought they were reactivated, older adults even showed better memory for those words, suggesting that they did reactivate those distractor words and their memories contained both target information as well as distracting information bound together. So in this study, you found that 
during that phase, that second phase that we talked about of retrieval, that the representation that's being reactivated contains both of those pieces of information. But do you think that most of this stems from the processes that are happening at encoding? So those representations kind of being locked together rather than differences that might be happening at retrieval? Like, is the process of retrieval the same for older and younger adults? It's just that the memory representation that they're retrieving is different. There are definitely differences in both, and that's a great question. So there are differences at encoding where older adults are showing this broader focus of attention where they're processing both task-relevant as well as irrelevant information. But there are also certainly differences in retrieval as well. So some researchers have used the term retrieval gating, where younger adults are better at filtering out irrelevant information that they need to remember. So let's say, for example, you process a piece of information in one context where it was relevant, but it's no longer relevant and you're trying to retrieve a different piece of information. So young adults are better at focusing their attention on information that is actually relevant to what they need to retrieve. Older adults, on the other hand, sort of remember everything in a sense. So they have a harder time suppressing this information that is not relevant to what they need to retrieve. So there are definitely differences in both encoding and retrieval that contribute to these differences. So when I was listening to this episode, I was thinking of other factors that can affect memory that, you know, might happen more when you're old or any, any time in your life. And one of the big things is social isolation. So there's been research showing that social isolation impairs memory. And this actually can happen at any age if someone is socially isolated. And one of the things, you know, if someone is depressed or something, they might be more likely to be socially isolated. And then they have more memory loss from that. And one of the issues is that when people get older, because of the structures of more Western societies, they will become more isolated because they'll live on their own and their communities aren't around as much that can contribute to memory loss. And I think that that's important to think about when we're thinking about aging and these other things that happen just by consequence of the way things are structured that contribute to the symptoms. I don't know if it's symptoms of aging. I don't know if you say that, but you, you know what I mean? Do you know why there is that association? Well, I was reading one paper that is the certain processes that happen when you're socializing and the certain neurochemicals that are released in the brain can kind of strengthen the brain in a way. So if you have dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline and these things that are kind of healthy for it, And when you're isolated, you have less of of those things that are kind of keeping your brain healthy. And another thing, I mean, this is just entirely speculation, but we know inflammation is bad for the brain and like depression and things have been linked to increased brain inflammation. And I was wondering, and maybe there is research on this, is that if you're socially isolated, that can lead to more of those inflammatory responses. And that potentially that could be, I was thinking, contributing to that, to the memory loss. There's also, I mean, in this idea of the importance of social connection, this doesn't have as much to do with memory, but there's this cool research showing that there's kind of this contradiction in the lifespans of Latino communities in the U.S., And the contradiction is that the health profiles that a lot of Latinos have are such that they should, quote unquote, 
be living shorter lives. So they have like higher blood pressure. They tend to have higher BMI. We know that BMI has a lot of different issues associated with it. But those types of markers that are typically used in like diagnosing different issues, they would suggest that Latino communities should live shorter than white communities. And those same types of markers in in Black Americans are associated with shorter lifespans. But Latinos actually live longer than white Americans, which is kind of surprising given their kind of profiles. And one of the reasons for this that some research has looked at is that it seems like it's really about the fact that the place of the elder is really different in Latino communities. So for a lot of white people, like so in more individualistic ways of thinking about families, typically when someone gets sick, they'll just send someone to the hospital to be taken care of over there. Whereas Latinos often, when someone gets sick, they send them back to the home because there's someone that wants to take care of them there. And that means that people who are older are surrounded by people who know them really well. So they can tell if something is off. Whereas if it's someone who has maybe just known you two weeks while you're kind of staying there in a patient facility, won't really understand you as well. And so that means that because these people are being so protected by their communities, even if they're older and they might have these higher risks for certain diseases, they're actually more likely to be healthy and live longer lives. And what's really interesting about this research is that they found that if you're a first generation immigrant, then you're more likely to have these protective factors. If you live in Latin America, you're also more likely to live longer than someone who lives in the U.S. And then if you're second generation, then you're less likely to have these protective factors. Third generation, also less likely. And the reason for that is that people end up kind of leaving their communities. And they've also found related to this that when predominantly Latino neighborhood becomes gentrified, that these beneficial effects disappear, which is really sad. But it's also really sad. kind of in relation to that, if you're a non-Latino person and you live in a Latino community and you're embedded in that community, you have those same protective effects. Oh, so it's wow. really about the community caring for people who are elderly and those kind of tight bonds. So it seems like that kind of social connection is really important all around for memory, but also just for like the more biological stuff that we've also been talking about. I thought we could talk a little bit about your neural work. So you suggest that these different encoding processes might have to do with an interplay between two brain regions, specifically the default mode network and the cognitive control network. So could you first explain what these two regions are, what they're kind of known for in neuroscience, and then discuss your findings that show that these might be related in terms of encoding differences? Yeah, so these different networks typically include multiple brain regions. So uh, when we typically say a cognitive control network, we're referring to a lot of different uh, regions in the brain that show increased activity when individuals are paying attention to some sort of stimulus, right? Or whether it's an external stimulus, for example, or performing some sort of task that requires focused attention, we see increased activity in these sets of regions at the same time, meaning that they kind of form a network where there's a lot of interaction between these different networks. And even at rest, sometimes we can see that the activity in these regions is correlated with one another, suggesting that they form some kind of brain network. And there are different networks in the brain, including this cognitive control network. There are several different cognitive control or attention networks. So it's, the literature is a little complicated in that regard. 
But there's also this other network called the default mode network. And some researchers are kind of disputing the name because they think that it's involved in a lot of different functions as well. But we typically see increased activity in this default mode network when participants are resting. So when you put people in an MRI scanner and you tell them to just you know rest and not engage in any particular task, it's not like the brain completely shuts down. People start thinking about their past or their future, or their mind wandering or what they're going to have for dinner later on. And uh, that is typically associated with activity in this default mode network. And this same network typically shows decreased activity or in a sense is deactivated when people are engaged in any kind of externally oriented task. So to answer your, the first part of your question, what we typically see in older adults is reduced control of this default mode network that needs to be suppressed or deactivated. And we think that reduced control of this default mode network is related to older adults' cognitive patterns that we see in different tasks. So they have a harder time focusing their attention that might be related to default mode activity. They might make better use of prior knowledge that we think is also related to activity in this default mode network. So there's, it's definitely sort of a complicated brain pattern with a lot of different possibilities and a lot more research is being done in that field. So in the study where you looked at the interplay between these two networks, were you using fMRI to look at this? And then were you using similar tasks that you had used in past research? So you're just looking at the brain activity that was happening in those regions and doing some kind of functional analysis of brain connectivity? Yeah, so we were doing some functional analysis of brain connectivity based on functional MRI. And the task we actually used was a memory task that was different than those typical distractibility tasks that I mentioned. And in this particular task, what we're interested in is differences in memory patterns based on whether information that participants were learning was either consistent or inconsistent with prior knowledge. And the idea here is that if older adults are always showing activity of this default mode network, which some people have shown associations between it and knowledge or your ability to access knowledge, then older adults might show uh, an advantage for information consistent with prior knowledge relative to information that is inconsistent with prior knowledge. And that was particularly what we saw. So the more they showed increased activity in this default mode network, even though that could be bad in certain contexts, was actually beneficial when they needed to process information that is related to prior knowledge or information that they already had. And we think that that is in a way adaptive for the types of information that older adults could be processing. So when it elicits this prior knowledge, then they can actually show an advantage relative to completely random information. And when you say consistent versus inconsistent, do you mean consistent with things that you had been showing them to be associated in the specific task? Or is it more like general knowledge things like associating a dolphin with the sea versus exactly yeah it is consistent with general knowledge that they already had so in this paradigm which was used in previous studies as well it was an associative memory paradigm where we actually just asked them to remember prices for grocery store items and in one condition the prices were kind of consistent with what they expected for example canned corn for two dollars and 99 cents as opposed to canned corn for fourteen twenty nine, right? So in one condition, it's kind of what they would expect the item to be priced as. In another condition, it, it was way overpriced, for example. 
So with this interplay with the cognitive control and the default mode network, or this kind of maybe loosening of control of the default mode network, is the idea then that these older adults are relying on information that they kind of already know? So in that memory task, is it possible that they just so happen to get that 299 correct because it's what they kind of already thought? So they're not necessarily forming a new memory? Or is it really that that default mode network is somehow supporting the consolidation of those memories that are more in line with what they expected already? We definitely think it's more in line with the latter, as in supporting the, the processing and consolidation of that information in the sense of this prior knowledge kind of provides some sort of scaffold that helps this information gets processed. We used a lot of different prices, so it's not necessarily that they're always buying canned corn for $2.99. It could be anywhere between, let's say, $1.49 and, and $5 or something, right? So it's not, they have to remember the exact amount for each item. So the fact that it was just consistent with prior knowledge is what particularly helped them, as opposed to them kind of remembering stuff that they already knew. So it, it more has to do with this prior knowledge, which these network of regions is what supports this memory process of encoding this information and being able to remember it later. So in terms of implications of this kind of work, I know this is like kind of a jump, but do you feel like this feeds in or is maybe yeah. something underlying to the idea that older adults tend to sometimes be less likely to want to engage in new technology or maybe they're more opposed to things that are different from what they might have originally when they were younger be exposed to? Or do you think that these are just kind of separate processes and these are stereotypes that maybe are not actually founded? I mean, there are individual differences in older adults. Some are way more open to new experiences than others, but it is possible that it is, could be a contributing factor that this sort of over-reliance on prior knowledge or having instant access to knowledge that in a way compensates for loss of other types of processes or attention-related processes that decline with age might contribute to older adults perhaps not wanting to try new things. But again, this is just a pure speculation. And as I mentioned, with age, what we typically see is a lot of individual differences and variability in, in what older adults do and how they approach new tasks. So in this work, when I was thinking about the older adults that I know in my life, again, as you're saying, I feel like there's so much variability. I know people in their 60s who don't seem like they're as cognitively sharp as people in their 80s or even 90s. So in your studies, how do you define aging or how do you look at aging? Is it just 60 plus or 65 plus that you look at? Or do you have them do some cognitive tests to see if they kind of pass a threshold? Or how is it that you conceptualize this idea of old age? Yeah, so we typically look at healthy older adults. So we, of course, we screen participants before they participate in our studies, typically uh, 65 plus in our studies, or, you know, sometimes 60 plus. And beyond the initial screening, we give them also some sort of cognitive tasks unrelated to the experiment itself to make sure in the sense that they're also cognitively intact and we have certain cutoff scores. What we typically see in the aging literature as well is that sometimes for certain studies, for research groups will use a full neuropsych test uh, battery to test older adults as well. So that is also common in aging research, particularly if you're looking at healthy older adults. But yes, so simple answers. We typically look at individuals who are over a certain age and we make sure that they're healthy older adults 
based on these cognitive measures. So there's this idea in aging research that there's something called mild cognitive impairment that kind of happens potentially as you age. So are the types of encoding and different types of memory representations that you're seeing in these healthy older adults, is that kind of arcing towards something like things that might actually impair their memories further or their cognition further? Or is this just a completely separate thing that isn't kind of part of that arc of getting towards a state of more serious or just general decline? Yeah, so I think you can think of it as being way on the spectrum, so certain older adults also. Those sort of cluttered representations that we refer to are these age-related changes of having a broader focus of attention, for example, are all natural age-related changes that we see. So even healthy older adults will show more of these patterns relative to young adults. With respect to MCI, it is possible that people within those populations might show sort of exaggerated versions of some of these things that we see, and that could be problematic concern cases. So the point is, even for healthy older adults, some of these changes are quite natural and, and are to be expected. So kind of in that vein, then you look at two populations usually when you're doing your studies. So you look at younger adults who are the maximum in their 20s and then older adults. Is there any evidence either from your research, things that you might be doing now or other researchers who are looking at that in-between stage? So is there any research on how we get from one to the other? Is it just a gradual process where someone in their 30s or 40s would look like they're somewhere in the middle of those types of representations and encoding patterns that people in their 60s versus people in their 20s would have? Or is there a more sudden shift? Yeah, that is a great question. And so what usually the issue is most researchers would tell you they would love to study individuals from all different age groups and not just compare older adults, 65 plus to young adults who are usually undergraduate students. Practically, though, it is quite difficult to test some of these participants who are in this middle group because usually they don't have as much time to be able to actually participate in these experiments. There have been some studies that were able to test some of these participants, but there is definitely a lot more work that needs to happen to understand how those changes and when those changes happen and what particular age we start to see this decline in attention and distraction processing. And not to say that there hasn't been any work on that, but usually those studies are not as common as uh, simple cross-sectional studies. Are there any longitudinal studies that have started where they're following people from young adulthood going into later adulthood? Yes, there are definitely some longitudinal studies, and there are several studies happening in different sites that follow participants over a long period of time. And What's interesting is that even though some of the trends might be similar, there are definitely some differences between longitudinal and and cross-sectional studies due to things like differences in cohort or cohort differences, which are a big issue in cross-sectional studies. So longitudinal studies, for example, we tend to see that the age in which memory decline happens, in particular episodic memory, can be actually a bit later than what we might predict based on cross-sectional studies. So there are definitely a lot of differences that, that we see between those different research designs and different factors that contribute to that. So definitely way more work needs to be done. And longitudinal studies obviously have the advantage of being able to follow the same individuals and having a more accurate idea of when those changes tend to happen. But of course, they take a lot more time and they're way more costly. 
it's okay if you don't know this off the top of your head, but are there any specific differences that kind of surprised you in terms of what a longitudinal study pattern was showing versus what these cross-sectional studies have shown in terms of differences? Yeah, so some longitudinal studies, at least with respect to memory decline, have suggested that it (laughs) tends to happen a lot later than what we think in cross-sectional. And I'm trying to remember exactly the numbers of at what age in particular that happens. But the general pattern is that some of these declines tend to happen much later than we think that they do, at least based on some evidence. And again, that could be due to things like cohort differences and differences in education, for example, or all sorts of different things that contribute to these differences based on cross-sectional designs. Well, that sounds like good good news, I guess, <laughs> that things aren't worse than it seemed. In terms of cohort differences and generational differences, something that I was really thinking about when looking at your research and this idea of loss of kind of cognitive control when you're encoding things is that at least for my generation, I'm an elder Gen Z. So (laughs) the internet age kids, people who are on social media all the time and who are just bombarded with information. A lot of my friends can't go outside or change, like change their clothes or do anything if they're not listening to a podcast or watching something. So do you think the way that we're encoding so much information and this idea of cluttered representations also kind of made me think of like how much we're storing in memory now, or if maybe it's not even being stored. Do you think that the way that we're kind of overloaded with information is changing the way that we encode and process different memories? Or do you think that's just alarmism? No, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible. And, and that would be a, a really interesting question. I mean, it is possible that maybe we're shifting more towards processing more and storing more information such that what we consider a cluttered memory representation that we see more with older adults might happen maybe at an earlier age currently because of the amount of information that we're exposed to. So it's certainly a possibility. I don't have an answer for that, but it will be really interesting if we start seeing those trends in the younger generations at an earlier age, just simply because of differences in how we process information and the amount of information that we're exposed to. So that would be super interesting to look at. Yeah, because I guess the cluttered memory idea is this idea that I think is surprising maybe for people to hear because it's it's the idea that maybe older adults might seem forgetful, not because they don't have the memories, but because there's too much going on, essentially, is what I understand from this idea of cluttered memory. But then at the same time, you do have people who are maybe in their 80s or 90s, and then people in their 60s who maybe have the same level of that cluttered representation, but that person who's 80 has lived 20 more years. So in that way, it seems like it's not just about being old and having lived so much life. So is there evidence that there's kind of a maximum amount of things that you can hold in memory? And is it really this idea that you've lived so much that your brain is just kind of saturated with information? Yeah, so there's definitely something to the idea that as you get older, there's there's more information to sift through, and that contributes to this cluttered memory. And a lot of it has to do with older adults' reduced ability to control the information that they might want to recover. But also, as you mentioned, as we get older, there's definitely more information that we're also navigating through in a sense. So there's definitely multiple factors that contribute to those cluttered memories and how they influence memory performance. But I don't think there's necessarily evidence showing that there's a maximum amount of information that we can store. 
But with respect to memory patterns in older adults, we do know that just having to work with more information and needing to control more information or suppress a lot of that information is what shapes how older adults remember things. And so it's a couple of factors that are coming into play here, reduction in the ability to control the information that comes to mind, but also having more information come to mind because of more experiences and more things coming to mind because of all the things that you've been through in life and what a certain stimulus can remind you of and elicit certain different information that you might already know or been exposed to. Okay. So I'm hearing that there's kind of two things happening that there's both sides. So there's a lot of information. You're being reminded of things that might've happened 60 years ago or 10 years ago, and there's just too much going on. But then at the same time, there might be these impairments, I think impairments in in quotation marks, because we've talked about ways that these can be positive, but Mm -hmm. impairments in how you might be processing. So there's a lot of information, but then also you're not doing as good a job as you might have when you're younger at sifting through the right, quote unquote, kind of information. Exactly. Or controlling what kind of information you want to remember. So there's what we call interference from a lot of different, you could call pieces of information that are coming to mind that you need to kind of suppress in order to remember this target piece of information. And and this ability tends to be reduced with age. In this review paper that you wrote last year, you talk about the positive sides of this. One of the positive things that you talked about was this idea that older adults might actually have advantages in creative tasks. So could you talk a little bit about that and why you think that creativity might be benefited by these types of different encoding processes? Sure. And just to mention that there's definitely a growing interest in creativity and there's way more research that's being done now to look at creative processes in young adults, but also in older adults. And it's not the case where every study on creativity is showing that older adults are more creative or even showing similar levels of creativity to young adults. That's not always the case. But what we're arguing essentially is that some of these cluttered memory representations are having a lot of information that come to mind and this information being bound together in a memory representation can potentially aid certain or performance in certain creativity tasks. And that's because in order to come up with some sort of novel creative solution, you need to be able to form these broad associations between seemingly unrelated pieces of information. And having access to all that information at once might potentially provide some kind of avenue to be able to come up with creative solutions to tasks, right? So all these pieces of information are coming to mind and they're in a sense bound together in memory, it might help you kind of come up with creative solutions because it might help you form these indirect associations between things that you might not think are necessarily related. And that's kind of one of the things that really helps creativity in general. So that's what we think might be happening with some older adults, but actually the link between cluttered memories and creative problem solving, for example, is something that still needs to be investigated. So one of the types of tasks that you mentioned in the review paper was this alternate uses task, which is a task where I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you give a participant a type of object like a hammer, and then you ask them what types of things could you use this for that aren't just what it's made for. So like using a hammer as a door stopper or a paperweight or something different than what it's used to for hammering in a nail. So in terms of the way that the default mode network is relied upon when people are making associations in this idea of bound representations and over-reliance on things that are 
meaningful associations that already exist. I was kind of surprised at this idea that older adults might be better or maybe just as good at this kind of task because it felt like that idea of the meaningful associations made me feel like maybe those are harder to break based on some of your past research, specifically that research looking at the prices, where it's easier for them to remember things that are consistent. So is it just that there's so much in their memory representations that they're kind of able to navigate through and see connections between these different disparate parts? So is that kind of contradiction that I'm seeing not really a contradiction or how do you understand that? Yeah, so I don't necessarily think of it as a contradiction. I think of it as different processes that are influenced by this memory structure that we think is more common in older adults. So in one case, for example, you're talking about meaningful associations and them showing enhanced memory performance for that. We think having access to primary knowledge through, for example, increased activity in default mode network, for example, is something that helps them in certain memory tasks. So when you're encoding information or processing information that's related to prior knowledge, and you always have access to this prior knowledge, then this knowledge can, as I mentioned, provide the scaffold that helps you process and remember that information. But having access to a lot of information, whether it's knowledge related or, you know, as you mentioned, disparate pieces of information that might not necessarily be related to a task, can also help you establish new connections between different pieces of information, which may aid creative problem solving. So it's generally that structure of memory or the form of memory representations in older adults can have a different impact on many different tasks, whether it's being able to come up with a creative solution or forming a reliable memory trace for information that's consistent with prior knowledge. So those are obviously some of these advantages, but as we talked about, it could also have disadvantages like interference from information that is not relevant to remembering a target piece of information. So it's definitely the sort of complicated structure of memory that can influence many different tasks, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. So these outcomes, as you're saying, seem not really like double-edged sword, but just that there are advantages in some cases and disadvantages in other cases. So do you see it as there being anything that younger adults should try to pull from the way that older adults are processing things or vice versa? Or do you just see it as these are different types of ways that people process things and just something to be aware of more than anything else? Yeah, so definitely what we study is sort of natural age-related changes that can explain some of the patterns that we see in both young and older adults. And a lot of that happens due to changes in attention and cognitive control naturally. That's not to say that all this is beyond our control. These are changes that happen, but we, as I mentioned, we see a lot of variability both within young adults and especially within older adults. So we talk about general age-related patterns, but it's not something that is necessarily always beyond our control. But to also answer the question of whether what we see in older adults is something young adults can learn from, I guess it's kind of a tricky question. I think what can actually be learned from that is that there are certain advantages to the way that we process things and everything is kind of based on the context. It's not necessarily the case that what we expect to see as we get older is, is all negative, but there are certain contexts where our cognition that is more typical of, of older adults is actually beneficial. So I think that's something important to keep in mind and always think about some of the positives that we might expect as we get older. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to think about it. That you know, as you go on this adventure of life, you're going to start processing things differently and live a different kind of experience. So, in terms of what you're talking about with all this variability, are there specific types of individual differences that you see in the older adults in terms of things that might correlate with more or less of this type of memory? I know there's a lot of research that shows that staying active, both physically and mentally allows for there to be less cognitive decline. But again, this doesn't really seem like it's decline related. So is there anything individual difference wise that you're seeing that might predict some of these types of processes in older adults? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. It's not really the sort of type of research that I personally do in the lab. But as you mentioned, there is definitely a lot of research showing that staying both mentally and physically active is related to different cognitive outcomes including differences in these attention processes that I was referencing, as well as not just when we measure that using cognitive tasks, but also even just looking at the brain and, and studying, for example, differences in brain structure based on differences in lifestyle. So there definitely is some work out there showing how staying active is related to these attention processes. And based on that, we would expect that those older adults who might sort of behave a little more like young adults or are better able to control distractors, for example, might be the ones who are, could be physically or mentally active or ones who are engaged in a lifestyle that is keeping healthier. But again, as we talked about repeatedly, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's always better for all contexts, but there are definitely some other contexts where those distractors are beneficial. And is there any evidence that for younger adults, there might be something similar happening? Like Again, for younger adults, there's similar research that or my my professor in Psych 1 always used to tell me, you all need to make sure that you're working out before your final exam. It's not a waste of time. It'll make you sharper. So this idea that you're able to better kind of control your mind if you're keeping physically fit. Do you know if there's any evidence that this type of lack of attentional control can also happen with younger adults if we're not doing those same things as older adults, like keeping physically active? I think there are certainly individual differences within young adults as well. And those lifestyle factors would, we could reasonably predict that they would have an influence on, on sort of cognitive outcomes in young adults as well. They seem to have more of an influence with older age where we expect to see some of that decline. And also there are a lot more experience and different things that happen with age that can contribute to these differences. So this variability tends to be bigger in older adults, but we could definitely expect it to also have an influence within younger adults and to operate in a similar fashion in young adults as well. Super interesting. All right, there's so much work that clearly you're you're on the way with, and I like this more kind of nuanced picture of aging, and it makes me feel more hopeful. And hopefully if there's older adults listening, they might feel better about the kind of ways that they might be processing. So I found this idea of clustering super interesting that happens in older adults. And Ava, if you could just help me to make sure I understood it properly. So the idea is in older adults, there's already more information stored in the brain. So when we have new information or we're trying to remember something, there's more, I'm again doing hand movements, but like it's more dense and that forms like the clustering. And that doesn't happen in younger adults because there's less information stored. Am I right? How, how do we think about that? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. The metaphor maybe that I felt like 
made sense to me, which I'm not sure if Tarek would 100% agree, but is this idea that memory is almost a little bit stickier for older adults. So the representations that you have seem to be influencing your later processing a little bit more. So this idea that when there's this information that maybe you shouldn't be remembering, older adults tend to be taking in that information, even though it's not the target information. So it seems like younger adults are a little bit better at focusing their attention on the appropriate thing to remember, whereas older adults, all of the parts of their memory maybe seem to be a little bit stickier in the sense that they're taking in more information, they're remembering irrelevant things a little bit better for some reason, and also their associations with past things that they have in long-term memory also seem to be a little bit stickier in the sense that they're more likely to be able to remember some new information better if it's consistent with past associations, like that idea of the prices of the canned corn that Tarek mentioned. So I think of it as a sticky type of memory. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So I thought that was really interesting because I've only thought of aging in the brain or how it changes over our lifespan in terms of the biological reasons. So we know in Alzheimer's, you can have more, you know, plaques in the brain, things like this. And that is leading to some of the changes that we see that are related to cognitive decline. You know, brain volume can get smaller, the, these kind of more structural changes, I guess. And I had never actually thought about a change coming from the way information is processed. Like aging also relates to information processing that isn't just a result of the structural changes because, you know, our bodies don't last forever. I guess it's unclear exactly at the moment, like how related all of these things are. Like maybe the increased plaque has to do with the ways that the different memory systems are kind of interacting with each other. I know one of the things that Tarek mentioned was with older adults is that there seems to be increased activity of this default mode network. And I think it's still an open question as to how these functional changes in the brain are related to these more structural underlying biological changes. And I think it feels, at least as someone who's more on like the cognitive neuroscience or even psychology side, that we don't yet have a really good integration of those more cellular changes like increased plaque and stuff like that and how that influences these broader brain structures, even though it's still biological, like it's still worth talking about these changes being instantiated physically and then having these downstream effects on the way that we're processing information that we can kind of see in someone's psychology. But I don't know if there's actually links between that. Yeah. And I was also thinking, I think because I don't come from more of the cognitive science background, so some, these questions could just be so off. So it's, it's okay if, if it's not a good question. But what I was thinking is with this, you know, clustering that we spoke about and this effect and how you described it being sticky, do you think that that is a failure of the system or a design of the system? Do you have an opinion on that? I think that's that's a hard one, like these kind of value judgments on whether something's good or bad. But I mean, I feel like I, I had the same question when I was talking to Tark as well. Like, are these good things like the ability to recall information that in the moment you might not think is pertinent, but you're still storing that somehow? You know, as he mentioned, sometimes that can be important. Like if you're talking to someone and you overhear someone mentioning that one of your colleagues' grandparents passed away, 
even though that's not pertinent right now, that's probably really important for like social relationships and being a thoughtful person. So it probably has these positive outcomes. In terms of it being good for aging adults, I'm not sure because maybe there's something to be said about younger adults. It's more important to be able to focus on tasks if we're in this phase where we're supposed to be working and we're supposed to be more, I don't know, focusing on foraging or focusing on remembering where the berries are, where the mammoths are, whatever it is that the evolutionary psychologists talk about. And then maybe as you get older, having those kind of like stickier representations, maybe that's better for integrating information. I know cross-culturally, elders are very important. And maybe this type of memory representation where you're integrating a lot of stuff, it almost seems like a form of wisdom potentially. But then it's hard to say whether like older adults evolve for that, because I, I think that we typically think that evolution is just about really survival of the species. So a lot of the things that happen in older age are just kind of accidents almost because you've already reproduced. I know some people say that maybe, you know, there's importance of making sure that your group survives and like group evolution and stuff like that. So I think the causality is hard to say, but it does seem like there are kind of advantages on both ends. but. Maybe these are things that we just need to be aware of. Like when you're talking to your grandparents, maybe they're yeah. just integrating a ton of other information <laughs> and you should appreciate that and know that their brain is working a little differently than yours. Yeah, because I was wondering because we're, you know, how we're all living longer, if maybe this would be something that will change over time. Like if this clustering, if we work longer into our life and we do all this, like maybe in, I don't know how long things take to change, but 100, 200 years that mechanism will happen later. I don't know. It actually got me thinking about why we would have evolved to have that and if that will change. Well, why do you think we evolved to have it potentially? Well, that I was wondering if it was just a flaw. Like, it's just we can't store infinite information. And as we get older, we just have more information stored. And that's one of the problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think I also was wondering this when I was reading Tark's papers. But I think he mentions that this isn't all there is to it because, you know, some people like some 40 year olds or even 20 year olds probably have had more things, quote unquote, happen to them. Or maybe they've just read a lot or they watched a ton of movies. And there's a lot to remember in in that sense versus someone who's in their 80s or 90s and maybe they don't have as many, I don't know how to define important quote unquote memories. So it doesn't seem like it's just a question of sheer volume, that it is also something to do with just the way that this processing is happening. And that's why it does seem like it might be part of this arc of eventual decline. But maybe there's a way that that decline, if we want to call it that, can just be stopped there. But it just seems like there's a lot of open questions, but at least some of this type of processing even if it is eventually related to decline, does have these positive outcomes where you're able to remember things that someone else might not be able to remember. Yeah, and back to what we mentioned before, I think this is probably the first time I've spoken about the connection between what's happening on the structural and biological level compared to like what's happening more on the functional level. And a lot of research just focuses on one or the other and connecting those two is super important. And because that obviously what is happening on the biological level is making all these processes happen. 
And yeah, but there's still work going into that. But I think that's, we don't really talk about that as much, but it is really important to think about. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's nice about Tark's work is there's a lot of fear around aging, I think it's safe to say. And there's a lot of like prevention and like all these ideas about it's really scary to get old. And there's, there's all these things that you want to do to kind of halt that process. But to see these kind of positive sides of it, and maybe that sometimes you might have a leg up in certain domains over younger adults, I think is nice to hear, kind of refreshing. And there is quite a lot of research or maybe burgeoning research in this field of taking back these stereotypes of older adults. I remember actually when we were doing our master's together, we had a talk about older adults and some findings that older adults are worse at certain decision-making processes. And I think decision-making processes specifically that had to do with math. But this study, I remember, utilized computational modeling to say that actually, even though older adults are taking more time to answer this question, that they actually, like somehow through this math that I think escapes even some of the people that are doing this modeling, but they're able to model something called non-decision time and this is in a model called the ddm and they're able to parse apart the process of actually computing the answer to the question and making a decision and the process of just taking in information that doesn't actually have to do with actually thinking so that study found that older adults were actually better at the math and they were faster at the math if you took away that non-decision time So it seems like this all kind of enters this canon of it's not so bad to be an older adult and older adults actually maybe beat younger adults sometimes if you take these different things that maybe are more latent variables into account. So our last question that we ask everyone is, what are you up to next? What are you working on that you're excited about? Yeah, so I'm definitely still interested in further exploring these memory representations in older adults. I feel we are just beginning to uncover what kind of representations older adults have in their brains and how they influence different types of tasks. So that's something that I'm interested in further exploring and using new methods as well, such as eye tracking, which is known to be a a sensitive measure of memory in older adults. And also explore differences in as we get older and how our, our, our brains are actually processing information, particularly how memory structures such as the hippocampus are influenced by input from other regions of the brain that are involved in attention to kind of understand how these brain-wide functions influence some of these processes that we're interested in. So rather than just focusing on certain areas of the brain, sort of understanding, again, going back to this network idea and how different parts of the brain interact with one another and how those interactions change with age. So definitely a lot of different methods to probe this idea of how older adults store information in general and how it influences their performance on memory tasks and everyday life. Well, we're excited to see where the lab goes next. I know you're also recruiting grad students for next year, right? 2024? There's yeah, any so prospective if, grad students. If, There's a lot of exciting work clearly happening in the lab. So make sure to check out the webpage, which we'll have linked in our show notes. And thank you so much, Tarek, for being here. It was great to get to talk to a fellow Canadian as well. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you to Dr. Tarek Ammer for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. 
Our transition music is Back For More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuzo. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Thank you.